no one remembers what you did like five years ago, right? So at some point, this next meet will be five years in the past. This is where you're meant to be. Like, I know it. I've never My been best been self is better than every single person who's going to walk on that platform that night. Gosh, man, that was, was a moment that changed my life, man. Work harder than everyone else and just keep going. Get up and do it again and again and again. journey to a better you starts right now. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. My guest is Travis Cooper, an 89-kilo weightlifter. If you guys are a weightlifting fan, Travis's name is something that's been on your radar for a long time. So I hope my inner weightlifting fan didn't come out too much on this episode, but we got to break down Travis's career how he's changed up his training at different points in his life when his priorities have shifted, and what's next. So this was uh, a really fun episode for me, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. Well, you guys have been, you've been doing it forever, right? It's like two, over 200 episodes, so you've been, you've been at it for a while. Yeah, yeah, so uh, we started the weightlifting scoop a long time ago when we were at Muscle Driver, and it was probably around 2013, so, you know, about eight years of podcasting on and off. We took a little bit of a break for about a year, year and a half, um, just because I wasn't really connecting with anyone's schedule. But uh, yeah, man, we got a lot of episodes. It's kind of fun to listen back at some of them and and just see, you know, where I was at at that point in time or, you know, because at the end of the day, you kind of adapt and develop as a a weightlifter and weightlifting coach. And so your views kind of adapt and change. And it's, it's fun to listen to those things from back in the day. Do you ever go back to like the first one you did listen to that one back? I don't think I've ever listened to the first one though, just because like we didn't know what we were doing. It was like me and James Tatum in an apartment and uh, another, another weightlifter who's, who's won multiple national champions uh, championships. And um, we didn't know what we were doing. It was really hard to fill up the dead space. So, you know, we, but I kept them all up forever. Yeah, I think that's good though. I think people like that. Like you can you can actually go back and be like, "Oh, hey, you did suck at this in the beginning." <laughs> or some people are just naturally good at it. But I know like me going back, I'm like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I said some of that shit." Yeah. And most of the time really people are listening to podcasts with it with it in the background. So I think we overanalyze ourselves sometimes, but getting out content is is uh, you know, uh, more important than having the perfect content. Although if you're able to put out content regularly, you want to improve that content that you're getting out. But uh, I think sometimes people don't even start to put it out because they're worried that, Oh, like it's not good enough. And it's like, Hey, just put it out there. The first episode, you don't have an audience anyway. So only so many people are going to listen to it to begin with. So it doesn't really matter. Um, And eventually you'll get better and better and more people will start to listen and hear the good stuff. Yeah. It's almost like a hierarchy, like better, or uh, like shitty content is better than no content at all. And then once you actually start putting out content, you want to keep building on that. You don't want to just stay the same. And (laughs) if it's just shitty content all the time, then you'll kind of, you'll know people will stop listening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, let's just get started with your background in weightlifting. I mean, I'll do an intro in the beginning, but I feel like it'll take me forever to go through all your accolades. But but how'd you get into the sport and what was early training like? Sure. So I started weightlifting in like 2004. Um, and, and so, man, it's been a long time now, 17 years ago. And uh, 
I was just basically in high school and uh, met a met a coach at Velocity Sports Performance. His name was CJ Stockel, and uh, we just kind of hit it off. And and uh, he could see that I was generally strong, like I could squat a lot and, and do stuff like that. At that point, I could already squat close to 500 pounds or over 500 pounds, and so. He was like, "Hey, you got to try Olympic weightlifting. Like, just starting tomorrow, you're gonna come and train with the Olympic weightlifting team." And um, I didn't really question it. I like to lift weights, and I didn't realize it was its own sport. So I was like, "Cool, if we can lift weights tomorrow, and uh, I'll come by and uh, basically never miss a day after that." <laughs> what were you doing at the time, sports-wise? Were you doing other sports? Sure. When I was in, you know, younger, I played all kinds of sports, but at that point in time, I was like football, baseball and wrestling. Um, and I had determined that I didn't want to play football anymore. You know, I didn't really see like, we had a really competitive high school team and I, I was playing there and it was awesome. Like, uh, Calvin Johnson went to my high school and we had some, we had a kid named Will Judson who, um, that year on track pad. So it's like a laser time, 40 yard dash. He ran a, a 418, one of the lasers. It was like timed by like seven lasers or something crazy at some combine. And what the, the fastest laser was 418, which was like a crazy 40 time. And uh, so, you know, I saw like a lot of these athletes and people who were going to play collegiate football and eventually professional football and just realized like, hey, at my size, like I could play at a small college, but I don't even really care about football. So like, what's the point of like finishing out my high school career? And so... I kind of went all in with the weightlifting and initially I was searching a way to get better at wrestling. And, um, there was a, a, a wrestling coach who did like conditioning, strength and conditioning and, um, you know, off season wrestling. And then there was this, um, velocity sports performance that I ended up trying out first. And, um, it really had nothing to do with wrestling <laughs> at the end of the day, but I enjoyed it more. So I stuck with that. That's awesome. Like how, how fast did you pick this up? Like, were you just, you know, I know like you went to school age national stuff like that, but like how fast did it take you to snatch 70 for the first time or clean a hundred kilos? Like what was that progression like? Sure. So like I was already uh, like 17 when I started sports 16, 17. So like I had been lifting weights and so I could already squat like you know, like I said, close to 500 pounds or 500 pounds. I don't know the exact timeline there, but it was pretty close. And I could, you know, bench press like, I don't know, 300 pounds and, you know, do like some pretty, pretty decent basic strength uh, things. And so I could snatch 70 kilos immediately. So basically what happened is there was this guy named Chandler Offord. I'll walk in the gym. I meet CJ. He's really excited. There was this uh, software called Dartfish. He was showing me like bar path, all kinds of stuff with, that uh, Chandler was doing. And he was a junior national champion at the time. And so he's a good lifter. And he was snatching like 110 kilos for reps. And he was a 77. So, you know, like 19-year-old, 18-year-old, 77-kilo lifter. And, um, I never really met anyone that was like way better at any movement than me. So I was like, Oh, that's cool. And I kind of went to my basement that night and I had like this, uh, bench press bar and like some metal plates. 
And I remember I was like, all right, I'm going to try this. And I did like the craziest power snatches that you could think of. And that wide grip really killed my shoulders. But I got up to 70 kilos in the basement. That was the first time I ever tried snatches aside from like 95 pounds. Um, that was the first time I tried to go heavy in them. And uh, I was like, wow, that guy's really good. <laughs> <laughs> so I got some catching up to do. And um, that that was really the first time that I did that. My first meet was about two months after starting with CJ. And I did like 85 kilo snatch and 125 kilo clean and jerk. So you can see there was a big discrepancy there. Um, just because I was already really strong and the clean and jerk wasn't as technical, but the snatch was a completely new movement and I needed mobility and stability and just doing more reps of that. So, yeah, I'm actually the same way. Like when I got into the sport, when I did, uh, my first American open, I snatched 80 and clean and jerk 120. Mm -hmm. So I totally get the, get the clean and jerk comes pretty easy but the snatch is something that definitely takes time and takes building that mobility i'm sure coming in with a football background you're you're probably not built for it right away yeah so we had we had done cleans and training you know for football so i had a background in that stuff and the way that we did snatches for football is our coach was like hey we're gonna do these things it's called hang snatches and we're just gonna work on speed so move 95 pounds as fast as possible and so my impression of the snatch is like you never did the movement heavy. Nobody did. It was just something you did for speed, which that's the way we implemented it for sports performance, but it's not the reality of the snatch. Right. So, <laughs> but, um, no, it was, it was fun. Um, you know, so I didn't start out young enough where like, you know, my max was ever like 40 or 50 kilos, um, or, uh, because I had just done so much strength training before. So like, you know, listening to, Hey, your first weightlifting meet, you did this. Like I had a prior background in lifting weights. So that's why my numbers moved up fairly quickly. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear because, uh, like CrossFit wasn't even around at that time. So the snatch and clean and jerk really wasn't on people's radar as much. I'm sure like stumbling into that gym and just finding them was definitely not in the norm. Like you weren't going to run into anytime fitness and see somebody doing snatch and clean and jerk. No, velocity sports performance was gaining traction at that point in time. It was a really cool business model. I mean, they're like beautiful, they're spotless. It's a totally different thing than CrossFit. CrossFit is kind of like the down and dirty. You're going to do a lot of metabolic conditioning. Um, so my coach was working at this velocity and had a vision that each velocity sports performance could have a weightlifting team. And so we started with our, our location in Peachtree city, Georgia, and, um, ended out like, uh, from a business perspective, it wasn't good for him to continue on with velocity. So I stayed with him when he left and just trained in his garage. But like originally the vision that he had was we're going to start team velocity and every velocity sports performance could have a weightlifting team and we could grow weightlifting in this way. So, you know, ironically enough, CrossFit came around and, um, unintentionally grew the sport in the, in the way that he had the vision that uh, velocity would. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you bitter about that? Like the growth of the sport kind of happening through that way or have you just been always, you know, seeing the sport grow at any time is cool? Oh, I don't care how it, how it grows or anything like that. I mean, you know, the, the more people get into lifting, the more folks that 
I can work with as a coach or, um, and, and it also just brings more eyes to the sport. So as a competitor, like, you know, there's more people watching. It also means that competition is, is deeper. So there's a lot more people doing, um, the top lifts and, um, so yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, I, I like CrossFit a lot and I was able to work during college because I had a weightlifting background coaching CrossFit and weightlifting and making much better money than if I was just doing a minimum wage job at the, at the on-campus rec center. So yeah, for sure. I'd love to just like get a, get a picture of what a weightlifting competition was like in 2004, 2005, because now you go to a USAW meet and it's this big spectacle. There's three or four platforms. There's a ton of people who, who know what's going on. So what was a meet like when you did, did your first one? Yeah. So national meets used to be ran a little differently where the, the, so now USA weightlifting is in charge of all the national meets, whereas it used to be hey, we're going to pick out a meet director in a city and then they're going to take the reins. And so you'd have inconsistency. Sometimes you would have amazing meets. Sometimes you would have really rigged up meets that just were not good. Um, local meets, on the other hand, were nothing like they are today. And um, so, you know, I remember going to a local meet and uh, there was this, there's this one in Noonan, Georgia in the rec center and there's this room that is like maybe the size of a one car garage and there's two warm up platforms. Um, most of the time, like if, if you have kids competing like youth lifters, you had to bring your own youth equipment. You know, sometimes as a meet director, you still ask folks that have a lot of youth lifters to bring the youth equipment with them because there's only so much of that. But back in the day, it was just understood. You're going to bring a women's bar. You're going to bring youth equipment and then, um, they may only have like two sets of 25 kilo plates. So if you get up to something like 180, it might be loaded with uh, two reds, a blue and some change and, and a comp collar on the outside. You know, even if you look up um, international meets back in the day, that's how it was. And now it's kind of standard to have like the three or four reds on each side uh, just in case. So it was a lot. Um, it was a lot more relaxed. And in some ways it, it was good. I mean, weightlifting local meets specifically are a lot more professional. Now you have banners, you have nice competition platforms, you have cool locations. Um, usually you get a shirt, um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I, I host a couple weightlifting meets at breweries and that's always fun. You get a free beer if you're of age and you get to hang out. So it's like a neat location, right? That, that didn't exist back when I was lifting as a kid. Um, but I didn't know any difference. So I had a good time, but in hindsight, when you're a meat director and you know, the meat was like really cool and someone complains about something really silly, like you didn't have, I don't know, a true competition scale or something like that. It just makes you laugh because you're like, well, you should have seen me back in the day, but okay, I guess I'll take that one and, uh, try to make it better for next time. Yeah, and I know even back in what like 2014 wasn't nationals in a roller rink. Yeah, in 2013 that was the last meet that that USA Weightlifting did not take it in house because it was at a skating rink, and you know that's kind of like an ongoing joke, and so that's that's why you're bringing it up because everybody talks about it. And then that's uh, at that point Phil Andrews took over the weightlifting meets 
Um, of course, now he's the CEO of USO Weightlifting, but he was the events coordinator back then. And so he brought all the meets in house and uh, made them better so that there was consistency. You got the same type of banners at the national meets. You got the same um, microphones, audio visual type stuff. And in the same look and feel, you got a good warm up area and, and all that. So that's changed a lot. So what was the progression like? You, you compete at your first meet. You obviously got a really strong clean and jerk. The snatch is, is relatively good probably for, for right away. But what's kind of the next couple of years of training look like and kind of where did you take it from there? Sure. So my first meet, that was 85 and, and 125. So it was like a 210 total. And um, so basically from there, that qualified me for junior nationals at that point in time and the 77 kilo weight class. I have no clue what the qualification totals are these days. Um, so I went into wrestling season and then I didn't really train weightlifting specifically, although I was in a weightlifting class at school, it, it didn't have a lot of Olympic weightlifting, but it was just like strength and conditioning class. And then when I came out of wrestling season that year, I trained for a couple of weeks and went to the junior nationals. Um, I had increased my snatch a little bit, even though I hadn't really trained specifically for Olympic weightlifting that much, just by doing more reps, my technique got better. So I did a hundred kilo snatch and a 125 kilo clean and jerk at the, I guess that was 2005 junior nationals in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And, um, so that got fifth place. So that was like my second weightlifting meet ever. And um, maybe third, I might've done like another local meet the week before or something like that. And uh, from there, uh, I went to the school age nationals in the middle of that year. So it was my last year as a school age lifter. They say youth now, but youth lifter. And I did 105 and 135. So 240 total in the 77 kilo weight class and ended out winning. And at that point, I was like, hey, you know, I won like the youth nationals. Like, this isn't the biggest sport, but I'm decent at this, so I should keep doing it. And um, I decided to really like, you know, uh, go for it. So uh, over the next two years, let's see, the 2006 nationals, the next year, I did a 115 snatch and a 160 clean and jerk, so like a 275 total. And at that point, I was 18. And then. I got the opportunity to go to the OTC and over the next two years, my total increased drastically from 275 to 320. Um, but I had also moved up a weight class to the 85. So my best lifts when I hit that 320 are going to be a, a weird spread as well. It's 136 and 184. But, um, and I, I think like that progression, it shows like my clean jerk continuously moved up very easily because I had a lot of reserve strength. I could already squat quite a bit. Um, and I just had to translate it to the clean and jerk and the snatch. I struggled with the snatch for a very long time up until, uh, maybe like I started working with Glenn in 2013. So, um, yeah, I mean, I got to a 320 fairly quickly and then I hovered there for a very long time until I had a breakthrough in like 2013. And, you know, for people listening, eight years in between in between that progression, and, I mean, you can't really find people who want to do something for eight years anymore. Like, no one, 
you know, I, my first coach told me like, you can hit these numbers, but it's going to take 10 years. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like, I, I think I can do that. And those numbers would be pretty cool to hit. But most people you tell that if they walk into a weightlifting gym for the first time and you're like, Hey, you'll be really good at this three, four five years down the road, even sometimes eight or 10. And I think a lot of people just are like, uh, no thanks. I'll just do CrossFit or I'll just go to a Zumba class or whatever, you know? Yeah. Part of potential is interest, like true interest. So, you know, someone can have like the, the most amazing talent in the world, but if they don't want to do weightlifting, it doesn't matter. Right. So part of, um, you know, what you, what you want to look for is a lifter who actually enjoys it because if they don't, <laughs> they're not going to stick with it. So you either have to change their mindset or vision or, you know, how they view weightlifting or you should look for someone who's more interested in the sport. And so, yeah, I mean, if someone's not going to train for a few years or more, um, they're not going to be, be as good as they can be. Right. Um, they, they might be good, but they, they're not going to fulfill their own potential. So that goes for anything like, you, you can't really get good at anything without the right kind of habits and work ethic. Um, and you might get good at something because it's similar to something else you've done. So you might get good fast. And then, you know, people like to brag about, Oh, I did these lifts this fast and all that kind of stuff. Or I did this after only doing it for a year, but you know, that, that doesn't show the bigger picture. There's some background there that allowed them to get good quickly if they do. Was there something you were told in the beginning that kept you going? Like, was there a coach who said, you know, you have, you have some potential in the sport or was it just kind of self-motivation at that point? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, CJ told me like, he never tried to force me to stop playing other sports. He was like, Hey, play every other sport. And then this is what you can do the rest of your life, you know? And so he really like ingrained that in me and it stayed true. Right. Like I, I continue to wrestle and, play baseball and do other things until high school is over. And then in college, you know, you do some intramural stuff and, and things outside of weightlifting. But, but then at a certain point, like, you know, weightlifting is what you do. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the way you exercise and try to stay healthy. You try to, um, you know, re reach uh, peak performance in a sport. So there, there's really not that many sports that you can do once you're out of college and weightlifting is one of them that you can do for a while. Yeah. And you, you alluded to muscle driver a little bit for the non-hardcore weightlifting fans. You were, you know, training full time. That was your job. Can you just kind of talk through, through that experience? What, what that was like training full time. I'm sure you guys were, were pushing pretty hard. Some of the videos on YouTube are pretty cool to watch, but what, what was that time like? Sure. So, um, yeah, when I graduated college, I kind of I worked as a software developer for a little bit, and and then I kind of realized like, like, hey, I want to pursue this weightlifting thing, and this isn't really like helping me get there. So I'd see YouTube videos. Uh, YouTube was just starting to get popular for weightlifting. This was like 2008, 2009 or so, and um, so I was doing that and and just not really happy. And I decided to stop doing that and continue to coach at the CrossFit gym that I had a weightlifting team at. And I was, I was like, 
you know, probably making a third of the money that I was making as like a software developer coming out of college. So my parents thought I was crazy. And um, so did probably everyone else that doesn't understand weightlifting or, in, you know, something that you're passionate about that doesn't really allow you to make a lot of money. Uh, but for some reason, I was drawn towards it and decided to do that. And um, we had some pretty good training, built a good weightlifting team. Um, but I was really at that point, I was no longer living close to CJ and I had left OTC, so I didn't really have a coach. And so uh, Glenn Pinlay had reached out and said, hey, you know, why don't you spend some time in California with me? So I moved to Cal Strength for like a few months with Glenn. It was really, it was only like a month or two and uh, learned a lot, had a good time, uh, but I didn't want to move to California. So they ended up moving their team from California Strength um, to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina at a facility that made weightlifting equipment called muscle driver USA. And, um, as a part of that, we had a lot of great weightlifters to train with. Um, and we were training full time. And at that point in time, Charlotte was really cheap. <laughs> so we could have an apartment. Me and James Tatum shared an apartment for 800 bucks a month with utilities. So we paid 400 bucks a month each and, is a decent apartment. It really wasn't bad at all. You can't find that anymore, but uh, we lived on very little money and we're able to train full time. So how important do you think that time was like the, the environment of being around other people who are taking it seriously? One thing, you know, that I've struggled with a little bit is just not having those elite athletes to train with. So when you when you're at Muscle Driver, do you notice like a big increase just because you're around people who are really taking the sport seriously and who want to make Team USA and you know Olympic goals stuff like that? Yeah, to a certain extent, I think you don't necessarily have to train with a bunch of really good lifters to get the most out of yourself, but you have to have your life structured in a way where you don't have a lot of stress outside of uh, outside of training and and you have to be able to have some form of consistent income along with that so you know that means having a job that's not super stressful that allows you to train enough to get good so in our situation the biggest thing that uh, at at my level of uh, stipend at muscle driver and USA weightlifting, I was able to live off of it. And that was only because I was making like world teams and that kind of thing. So not every lifter would, some of the lifters were only making like 400 bucks a month, which was a good subsidy, but it, they weren't able to live off of it. Um, but there were a few of us that were getting a stipend from USA weightlifting, which was about 1500 bucks a month at the time. And we were getting a stipend from Muscle Driver. And since Charlotte was so cheap, we could live on that money. Um, and so uh, that, that was very helpful. So basically every month I knew money was coming in and I could train and make sure that uh, I was optimizing my training. So if you can find that situation outside of a stipend system, which is really difficult, if somehow you were able to train full-time, even if it was by yourself and you were able to afford massages and, and that kind of thing and had a few people to train with, you know, they don't have to be elite lifters. 
but just a few people that kind of pop in and out of a couple gyms and, and meet with once a week. I think you could replicate the performance. Um, but reality is, man, is that most people have to have a job and, and, uh, so, so it's, it's very difficult, you know, if you have a job and kids and you're married and, and all those things, which are amazing, you know, parts of life as well. Um, you know, it adds stress. It does. So it makes it more difficult to recover. So I think that you don't have to be around a bunch of elite lifters to be, to optimize your own potential, but you have to have very low stress and consistent income coming from somewhere that doesn't take up all your time. For sure. So what's, what's been your, you know, progression mindset wise, like, you know, you're training full time. I'm assuming that that wasn't sustainable where you're training full time forever. So have you had any like ups and downs kind of, you know, periods where you lose motivation a little bit or you're not training as much as you used to? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, when you're in that situation, there was two situations in my life where I could train full time. I was resident at the Olympic Training Center when I was like 19 and 20. Uh, so my last two junior years, I was able to to be there. And basically when you're at the Olympic training center, um, you get all your food paid for, you live in a dorm, uh, you have recovery methods like, uh, massage, um, cold plunge, all that kind of stuff. So ability to, uh, meet with PTs whenever you need it. So during that time I had a huge performance boost from like 275 kilo total to 320. So that's massive. And to a certain extent I would have eventually gotten there anyways, but that definitely like, helped me get there faster because I was there with a good team and a coach and all those things. Um, and, and didn't have to worry about money. And I was also able to go to college when I was out there on a scholarship. So like schools pay for it. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. Right. So, um, I had a huge performance boost there because my life was very structured and was able to take advantage of those opportunities. And then at muscle driver, uh, there was a gap between then and muscle driver where, you know, I did okay, but I didn't really have a breakthrough because I was finishing college. That was very stressful. I was also like present my fraternity and very involved in college. So there was things outside of weightlifting that were taking away from it. But then when I said, Hey, I really want to push for weightlifting and immerse myself back into it 110% at muscle driver. And I had, again, some income coming in, not a lot, but enough to live off of. Um, I didn't have a lot of stress outside of training. My only worry was doing that. And I went from like a 320 to a 341 during that time frame. Um, and so, yeah, when you look at like those two time periods, that's when I made the biggest progress because my life was based around weightlifting, like nothing else mattered, but there was no balance there you know? And, and so it's not, it's not like sustainable because in reality throughout your life, you're going to eventually want to retire. So you got to get a job. You're going to want to, um, you know, maybe you do, or maybe you don't out there, you, you know, you might want to start a family, you might want to do other things. And so, you know, the more time you spend on other things, the less time you have on weightlifting and it's going to take away from your performance, no doubt. Yeah. And it's almost just like 
there's there's definitely times where you're you can be selfish in life and then there's times where you can't and you have to change your priorities i know i talked to a few different people about that like priorities change and that's okay like you, you don't have to be you don't if you can't train full time that doesn't mean that you should stop training altogether or that you're done in the sport i think a lot of people might you know, you, you have it one way and then you can't do that anymore. And they're like, Oh, well, my career's over. I can't do that anymore. got to move on, find something else when it's like, no, it just might be a period in your life where you have to dial things back and, and other things take precedent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're making a big push to finish your college degree, that's going to be stressful, man. And maybe it is going to take a little bit away from training, but, uh, at the same time, once you finish it, like if you just continue to train two to four times a week during that time period, you can maintain a lot of your ability. And then after that's over, you can get back to a point where you can put more emphasis towards it and get better than ever. So, yeah. And I feel like just from listening to you on a couple different podcasts, it just seems like you have, you know, a very, I don't want to say basic, but just like you, you train for a long time and that's kind of how it is. It doesn't have to be like this thing where you do it seven days a week. Like you just said, it could be two to four times a week and you just have that, that long-term outlook. Have you always had that where you can look into the future and say, maybe my goals are, are five, 10 years away, but, but I'm able to, to do the things day in and day out that are going to make me better to do that. Yeah. To a certain extent. I mean, obviously we, we are always focused to a certain extent on the here and now, like how's the next meet going to be, <laughs> you know, but um, in reality, you can zoom out and, and say, you know, Hey, like, um, you know, I was only able to train this much and that's why I'm, I'm getting the results right now. So once I'm able to finish a couple things, maybe I'll have a time period where I can fully focus on weightlifting and, and, and make a push, you know, or maybe not, but just like, I think it's really important to be honest with yourself about what your capability is. Um, you know, are you physically healthy? What are your responsibilities outside of training? And if you really want to do certain things, you have to, you have to do the, the things required to get there. And, um, you know, for some people it's not even worth like, training as much as you need to to win nationals or do something like that because you're going to be neglecting your family you know <laughs> or, or, or you could you know you don't have to be that 100 percent in or out but at the same time like you really do have to look at things and say do i have enough time for this and then if you don't get the results like can you dissect why you didn't get the results yeah it's 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 very simple I mean, it's like you, you either did train or you didn't. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's just how it goes sometimes. Like it doesn't have to be, you know, something super complicated. Well, I'd love to hear you kind of, you know, you have so much experience competing. I mean, I mentioned before we started recording that you basically can't even find some of your meet results because you've been doing so many meets, but, uh, What's a, what's a typical meet day? Do you have uh, any specific routines that you do every single time or something that's worked really well? Oh, well, for the most part, um, I, uh, as, as far as like leading into a meet, I try to get to the, to the venue a couple days in advance so that I can just relax, maybe take a couple of days off of work before the competition. Um, and 
and just hang out in the hotel. And I try to do as little as possible. Um, I could coach people now. So occasionally I get out before I lift, but, uh, you know, I think for best results, it really pays to get off your feet and just hang out in the hotel room because you really want to taper for the meet. So if you're not walking a ton at home, you don't all of a sudden want to be walking all over the venue, right? So you just want to keep keep in mind, like, what is my normal activity level and try to keep it at or below that a couple of days leading up to the competition. And, um, you know, they have wearables now like Fitbits, Apple Watches, all that kind of stuff that takes, uh, you know, record of your activity so uh if you can see that hey i'm walking a lot of steps today and i'm two days out from a competition your body's not used to that so now if you are used to it no big deal um so i just try to make sure my activity level is pretty low try to use all my energy at the competition um you know depending on the weight class i'm competing in i may or may not have to cut weight um but uh just really try to visualize the meat and and try to stay distracted a little bit the night before and make sure my weight's on point and just have a good time with it. You know, at the end of the day, like it's a stressful event um, and there is pressure, but no one, no one remembers what you did like five years ago. Right. So at some point this next meet will be five years in the past and no one really cares. So even if people, like a handful of people recognize that you did poorly, like at the end of the day, like they're not really going to care five years from now and you shouldn't either. So just go for it, do your best. And then you should have no regrets. Is that the same when you go to something like a world championships or Pan Am games? Are you super nervous or doing anything different or has it always just been the same mindset? I mean, same mindset. That doesn't mean that I'm not nervous. I mean, I think you're nervous for every weightlifting competition you ever do, whether it's your first one or your, your hundred and 10th one or 200th one, right? Like it's just, it's, uh, there, there's always is a lot of uncertainty. There's an uncertainty in a workout. Even if you feel prepared for it, you go into the gym, you know, once the weight gets on there, you're like, how's it going to feel, you know? And so, um, I think that drives you to really be aggressive and, and go for it. Um, so I think, nervousness is okay and expected yeah can you just kind of walk through one of those one of those meets say say world championships what's it's what's it like training you know you're next to the chinese or you're competing with people from bulgaria and all these other countries what's that experience like yeah when you when you first start weightlifting um you know for us <clears throat> it was like watching iron mind videos there wasn't a whole lot of youtube and instagram back in the day. And so, you know, now you, you can see what people are doing and we kind of know like who the best lifters are. Like people see Lasha snatching 210 in training, 220 in training. And, the, you know, it's like normal to have an idea. Uh, there was a time where that wasn't the case and people wouldn't really post training because nobody really gave a crap about weightlifting. So nobody was videoing it. And, um, so you would see these iron mind videos that would come out occasionally. And, and so when you're in the room and, and you're seeing all these people that you have seen like one or two videos of, it is really neat. It makes you feel great uh, about your accomplishment of getting there. It makes you feel really excited and it, it gives you a boost in the energy to do your best. 
Yeah, and I know you guys had Jim Rudder from uh, the Sport of Steroids in Philly Barbell, and Jim was one of my first coaches, so I kind of know the story there. But when did you realize that, hey, maybe maybe I'm never going to get to this level that these other guys are at? Yeah, so I'd say I started weightlifting in 2004, and up until like 2008, I didn't even know like what steroids were or anything like that. And so I just assumed everybody was just like a human being that just lifted weights and you got better if you worked hard. And to a certain extent, that's true. Right. Um, but we had the Iranian weightlifting team come and train with us at the Olympic training center and a couple of other experiences. And, and a lot of these international lifters were like really open about steroid use since so they would tell you what they were on. Um, You'd be like, oh, you know, what do you want? And and at that point, I knew nothing about steroids, but I remember like them talking about like Dianabol doses and stuff like that. And so I was like, oh, okay, kind of opened my eyes that there was something different. So, you know, fast forward a while, like internally, we get drug tested a lot by USADA. So even today, like USADA could show up at my house and drug test me. So I have to make sure that I can pass the drug test 24 seven because they know where I live. And, you know, sometimes a guy doesn't come in the morning, he comes at night. So there's really no time that's safe if you're truly a drug tested athlete in the random testing pool. Um, but in other countries, they only get tested at the meet sometimes because like WADA would have to get um, visas to get into their country and then the government would, would notify the weightlifting team, hey, Watt is trying to get visa to get into the country, so be clean or go to your training camp or disappear or whatever. So, like, you know, it's just treated totally different. We have an internal doping control unit, which is trying to catch us if we're cheating versus, like, in another country, they're trying to help them not get caught. <laughs> so it's, it's a whole different ball game, And I think that that's happening a little less these days, but – Definitely at that point, like, um, you start to realize that sometimes at the world championships in the A session, it's like a bunch of like superheroes lifting because they've been doping all year and they're only going to pass the drug test at the world championships. And it is a little frustrating when that realization happens and you're old enough to realize it and understand that like, you're not going to get to that level unless you try to do that. And then if you do that and then get, you're probably going to get caught. And if you get caught, you're going to be like ostracized from USA weightlifting. So it's not worth it. Right. So you really have to say, yeah, it's possible to get to a certain level, but some of these guys are unreachable w without doing drugs basically. Yeah. And I think if you read that book, and I highly recommend people read the book, even if you're not a weightlifting fan, it's just a good read. But, you know, you can either be bitter about like everyone in the sport, not everyone, but a lot of people in the sport are doing steroids. Or you can say, wow, look at the USA athletes or the other clean countries. It's incredible what they're the amount of weight that they're able to lift, not completely natural and doing it the right way. So I think for me, it kind of tainted weightlifting as a fan, just like watching and being like, oh, maybe, you know, that's not even possible. Anyone, most normal people are never going to get to that level regardless. But you can look at, you know, things that you're doing or CJ or Harrison and be like, holy shit, how, how are people this strong? And that, that part to me is motivating. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is just, uh, you know, 
you don't even know where you actually stand, right? Like how far are you from being um, one of, one of the best lifters in the world? You know, it's very difficult to know because there, there are definitely other people out there besides the U S that is clean, but we know that a large majority of countries uh, like there's not that many weightlifters period. that are hundred percent lifetime drug free athletes. And, you know, I mean, even here in the U S like you might get people from other sports and they may not be doing drugs now, but they have in the past. And is that fair? Like it's a really difficult ethical question to think about. And um, it, it's just frustrating because you don't know really where you stand. So if everybody was drug free and you could prove that, which you never will be able to, but if you somehow could, it, you would at least know like how good you are. And that's really the only reason why I've stuck with the sport for so long, because I felt like maybe at some point drug testing would continue to get better and better. So I just wanted to train enough to stay in some sort of shape that if, you know, drug testing got really, really good, that all these people would get caught. And then you would actually see like, you know, am I 10, 20, 30, 40 kilos away? Or, you know, where do I actually stand? And then once you find that out, um, I think there would be less uncertainty and you would feel like, okay, I know where I stand now and I can like be done with it. <laughs> but because there's so much uncertainty, like I, I don't know what other people could do. You know, you see Ilya and he gets popped and then he has a hard time cleaning jerking 200 kilos at like 96. Like 200 kilos and 96 is a good lift. But I'm, I've known a lot of people drug free, 100% lifetime drug free that have done that lift. So, uh, and I feel like at one time, like I probably could have done that lift at 96, you know, I'd have been like a short, short and fat as hell, but I feel like it would have been in the realm of possibility at some point in time. I did 195 in training and weighing like 88 kilos. So I don't know, man. I mean, was he just not training very hard and just didn't know how to train drug free? Or was that like a true like, wow, he has a hard time cleaning and jerking 200 at 96 drug-free. Like, I don't know, man. But it, it is frustrating to see stuff like that because he's considered a god in the sport but then has a hard time cleaning and jerking 200 kilos once he gets off drugs. Well, that's a good, but that's not great. That's not a great lift, you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. I Yeah, know. and I, I was just going to ask that as well. Like, you know, 17 years in the sport, what's what's kept you motivated all this time like is it just seeing where you stand your potential seeing how you know at the end of your career that this is how good you were at weightlifting yeah i mean i think you can do weightlifting a lot longer than people think um but but it, it comes down to like most people i haven't chosen to um so like obviously my life isn't organized in the same way it was when i was like able to train full time but if it was organized in that way and I had like no responsibility, I feel like I could do more than I did back then for sure. But I don't, I don't have that opportunity and I may not again. Um, but I think that people can do it longer. You know, I see folks like, I mean, you look at like Jason Bonick, he's like 40 years old and, and just did like, you know, he's doing like 350 in the 96 kilo weight class. So you know, I think 10 years ago, people would have been like, oh, like at 40, like you probably can't do that. But you can, but people just didn't choose to in the past. So 
there's there's obviously a limit, right? You can't be 80 years old going out there clean jerking 400 pounds. So there's a point <laughs> in which biology takes over, but I think that point is longer than people have thought in the past. Yeah. So so what are your goals going forward? Are you still, you know, hungry for anything in the sport? I know you just won nationals in 2020, so it's not like it's not like you're like an old fighter or something, you know, getting knocked out all the time. It's like, you're still one of the best in the country. Yeah. I mean, this year at nationals, like I kind of just, you know, I was there to win and didn't snatch very well. And so I ended out like having to, to, to go big on clean jerk and didn't make any clean jerks, but you know, um, yeah, I mean, I want to continue to do weightlifting and, and do the best that I can. And, um, you know, organize my life in a way where I can optimize that. Like, there was a time after 2016, like, <clears throat> um, so I made a run for the 2016 Olympics and I was re- really close. Like I was ranked in the top four, like majority of that quad. And so if we'd have gotten three spots, I feel confident that I would have had a, a very high probability of getting one of those. You never know what happens, but I felt like I was always ranked in the top three for the most part. So, um, the next squad I had to spend like, you know, figuring out how to get good at my job. <laughs> so, you know, I, I moved away from muscle driver was no longer getting a stipend and had to figure out how to make money and be good at my job. And so I, I transitioned back to being a software developer, spent a lot of time refining my skills. Um, I work with an amazing company right now, Live Oak Bank. And like, you know, the first year of working there, I was really getting to know the ropes and now that I've been there for like three years, I'm I'm one of the people that knows a, a good bit of stuff and it takes less energy to do the job because I'm just better at it. Like anything, um, when you when you get a little better, it takes less energy. So um, like, you know, first time you snatch 100 kilos, it's a maximum. So it takes a lot of effort. But, you know, if your max is 150, snatching 100 kilos isn't that hard. So eventually that's kind of what happens at your job. And, um, so it's been nice. I'm able to spend more time training now. Um, but you know, it's obviously not the same as when you're training full time, truly without a job at all. What, what looks different? Like, are you, how often are you training now? Um, I think the biggest thing is just like, you can't, sleep in, you know, you always have to be at work at, at a certain time. So like a muscle driver, for instance, if, uh, if training really beat me up and I needed like 12 to 14 hours of sleep, like I would do it, you know, <laughs> cause you need it. Like physically at some point when you're training hard enough, you will just go to sleep and it's like really difficult to wake up. So you can do those things and like not do anything for a day or, you know, whatever, whatever you need to do. But, uh, I think now it's like in a way I have an extremely good balance and I feel like I've been able to, I think on the ranking list, I could be wrong. There might be like two other people, but I might be like the only one in the top 20 that like has a full-time job. I mean, I don't want to like quote that because that may not be true. I think like um, there are some other ones, but there's only a couple, like most of the people in the top 20 ranking list are full-time weightlifters or, or don't have a, like a full-time job. And so, I mean, I, I feel happy about the balance I've been able to, uh, work out and, and being able to, uh, 
you know, have a job and the amount of energy that, that I'm able to expend doing it and, um, you know, able to make decent money doing it and that kind of thing. So. Yeah. And I just, I just love to hear what you do outside of weightlifting. I know you just don't have a job and, and go to the gym and that's your only thing in life. Like, what do you do to keep yourself healthy mentally and physically outside of touching a barbell? Sure. I mean, um, you know, I am, I'm married. Um, and so, you know, my typical day is like work nine to five, train five to eight. <laughs> um, you know, I run, run a podcast um, that we do once a week or so. Um, I, I coach 10 weightlifters. Um, and uh, so, you know, between between all that stuff, like the, the, the days kind of go away. So the weekends are nice to catch up and just try to make sure that uh, spending time with my wife and my dog and <laughs> animals and all that and, and um, you know, just having a good time. But uh, yeah, when I when I really like say it out loud, it's like wow, it's pretty crazy because you know you work nine to five, and then you train for three hours, and then you do you you talk to your athletes and alter their programming, and then all of a sudden it's ten o'clock and you got to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's just it's all about priorities. It's like what you love to do, and I think it's awesome that you've you know maintained the love for the sport as long as you have. I mean, just in the three years that I've been training, I've seen so many people who are into it for six months or a year and go away and you never see them again. So to, to maintain it for as long as you have, I think is, is absolutely awesome. Yeah, for sure. I get into certain things, you know, like, I don't know, I might get really into chess for a while and I'll play for six months and spend so much time and then I'll kind of like not be as into it anymore. Right. And so weightlifting is just one of the things in my life that's been constant. And I think, you know, weightlifting, isn't always the constant thing in people's lives. They might try it for a season of their life and it's not meant for everyone to do forever, but, um, you know, everybody has their own thing. Um, some, some people like cooking, some people are passionate about just, uh, you know, reading or volunteering or doing other things. So just for whatever reason, weightlifting has been one of those things that that's been pretty constant. Yeah. If you can find that thing that you're really passionate about and then it's like, Hey, I do this thing three hours at the end of the day and I, I might not have the extra free time, but, but it's, you know, what you love to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hell yeah, man. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I just love to point people in your direction where they can find your podcast or your Instagram. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate that. Thanks for, uh, you know, having me on your podcast and hope everyone, uh, enjoyed it if you have any questions for me you can reach out to me at travis cooper 77 kg on instagram um we also run a podcast that's weightlifting specific called the weightlifting scoop um so you know our tagline is where you can get the scoop on all things weightlifting so we try to uh our focus is usa weightlifting so most of the things that we discuss are about uh the weightlifting scene in the United States. Um, occasionally we branch out to international stuff, but, uh, but that's our specialty. So anyways, that's me, man. Appreciate it. Once again, thanks so much to Travis for coming on the show. As always, his links will be right in the show notes. So you can head right there. If you enjoyed this episode, just make sure to share it out on your Instagram story and let people know that you'd like the podcast this week. If you are a weightlifter and also want to support the show, I do have a code at richmondweightlifting.com 
I've tried literally every pair of wrist wraps I could to protect my wrist from the snatcher clean and jerk. These are the only ones that have really worked for me. So they are leather wrist wraps, way more durable than just your regular wraps that you're going to find in a CrossFit gym. So you can go to richmondweightlifting.com, use the code BTY10, and that'll save you 10% off. It'll help support the show and support your wrist. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. I look forward to another great episode next week.